Hello and welcome to the official podcast of the West Virginia National Guard. I'm Master Sergeant Eugene Christ, a public affairs specialist with your West Virginia National Guard. Today on the show, we have Colonel Todd Fredericks, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and West Virginia National Guard State Surgeon. Dr. Brenda Phillips, the Dean of College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at Indiana University South Bend and an expert at emergency management and disaster recovery. And Major Holly Nelson, the State Public Affairs Officer for the West Virginia National Guard. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for being on the show today. Glad to be here. Yes. All right. Well, we're going to get started, everybody. So once again, I want to say thank you for joining us today. Um, especially want to say thank you to Dr. Phillips, my former boss and colleague on the civilian side. Um, as you, many people know, the guardsmen typically are serving part-time and in a former life before this job. I worked at Ohio University Chillicothe with Dr. Phillips and um she is a true dear friend of mine, and I'm just thankful that she's here with us today to share her insight um, from her expertise. So uh, welcome you both again. Uh, so first thing we're going to talk about, um, as we're dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic, um, from a military aspect, we think about um, mental health, how important mental health is for us, and uh, especially mental health in vulnerable populations. So I thought I would ask both of you to join us today to, to have a discussion about those topics. Uh, Colonel Fredericks, we have talked previously about um, sharing best practices, things that um, soldiers and airmen can do to prepare as we deal with this um, public health crisis. Um, but you also bring a unique perspective as well in your uh, civilian capacity. Um, can you tell everybody a little bit about uh, what you do outside of teaching at Ohio University? Um, sure, Holly. I, you know, my, my, obviously, I'm a, I'm a tenure professor and researcher and clinician at OU at the medical school. And, of course, I have my military job as a state surgeon of, of the West Virginia National Guard. But as a clinician, I spend my time as a psychiatric hospitalist. And so I work in a uh, locked psychiatric facility uh, with some really great patients, good people who've just gotten through some interesting parts of their life and are, are get, trying to get through with their lives. And, um, and uh, I handle the medical issues. All, all the psychiatrists are physicians too, but they tend to focus on the, on the behavioral health, mental health, rehabilitation, medication sort of aspect. So my job is to look after those patients along with my other colleagues uh, on the medical problems that we think of like diabetes and hypertension and making sure they have good dental care and their feet are in good shape, all of which affect their overall psychiatric emotional health as well. All right. Thank you for that explanation. Um, so I would say you have a little bit more of a unique perspective um, when we talk about uh, behavioral health issues that maybe our service members might facing it. And I know for myself, as we're now entering day 49, Colonel Fredericks, you and I have been in this since the beginning, uh, since day one, when we started our operations here in the state of West Virginia, um, and today we just learned, we just wrapped up the governor's press conference um, just a few minutes ago, and uh, we learned that there have been an additional uh, couple of deaths in the state. We're now up to 46 lives that have been lost due to this um, uh, COVID-19. And uh, while we're lucky here in West Virginia that that number is low, it is still continuing to affect people across the United States. And I know that reading these numbers every day, that's taken a toll on my mental health. Um, we're in the military and we're used to getting up every single day and, and just carrying forward, knowing we have a mission to accomplish. Um, but when we, when 
we go to lay down at night, um, we're kind of running through things that ha- uh, have happened throughout our day and um, just what we've had to process. So for me, I'm, I'm curious to know, um, based on both of your specialties, um, how, how big of a, of a deal is mental health right now is when we're talking about a, a large-scale disaster, Dr. Phillips or um, Colonel Fredericks, um, and, and how does it take its toll on people? I'll tell you what, I'll start then, and she'll catch up, I'm sure, and hopefully I don't, I don't cover, talk over anything she has to say, but um, it does take a toll. Um, one of the things about the military, which is unusual, is that we typically have a place to go when we leave our home. You know, we either deploy for a domestic uh, emergency response, say to Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy, or we're deploying outside of the continental United States, Oconus, to combat or to another operation. And so that affords us a little bit of insulation in terms of understanding that where we live is safe, where we live is home, where we live is someplace to look forward to being. Um, And then when we come back, we can look forward to that too. But this is different. This is like being the Louisiana guardsman who lived in New Orleans or whose family did and have your home disrupted, to have your life disrupted, to have the the stability that you've come to know and depend upon when you leave work, be where you live and work. And so that takes an effect. And, and, you know, it is, that's one aspect. The other aspect is continuous operations. It's really hard, especially in the military, not to be in a sprint mode. Um, We kind of had to learn a little bit of that through the global war on terrorism and follow on operations that it's, you know, the end is not foreseeable. Um, it's not like World War II where we went off and we fought two major theater wars and we're done at home in about three years. Um, these kind of things are really uncertain. And so that, that it creates a sense of, of ambiguity and uncertainty and trying to figure out what your role is and how fast you should go, what needs to be done now versus what can be planned for and anticipated in the future. All of that, uh, as I like to say, makes withdrawals from your bank. So I've always said that when we deploy, you, you show up at your deployment site with your bank account as full as it's going to be. And you can do a few things to keep the rate of expenditure of emotional, spiritual, and physical energy down, you know, exercise while you're, while you're there eating right. But generally speaking, you're making a constant withdrawal on that bank account of, of mental, spiritual, physical energy that you have when you arrive, which is why we push fitness so much. And so you run a sprint differently than you run a marathon. I think right now in this process, we're all trying to figure out how do we get out of sprint mode and stay in a marathon mode so we can go for a very long time and not experience moral injury, moral trauma, uh, the things that can really sap us and make us less effective. Um, Dr. Phillips, uh, if you want to weigh in on uh, you specifically, spend a lot of your time discussing um, vulnerable populations and how they are um, particularly targeted through any disaster. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the importance of uh, mental health from your research um, over the years? Sure. Well, I think we know that in most disasters, most of the time people do fairly well. We tend to see people rallying around each other and supporting each other and taking care of each other. And it turns out that social networks are just extremely important to anybody um, feeling better, feeling better about their own mental health, feeling that they are connected to other people. So it's really important if you're a part of a group that's being affected, and certainly we all are now, to really build those social connections and to take them seriously. With vulnerable populations, um, we think about people that have been disproportionately impacted by a disaster. So I'd be really concerned, for example, about people who have 
lost their jobs, who have lost loved ones, or for the people that are on the front lines trying to take care of massive numbers of people who have become ill or who have perished. So those are the folks I would want to um, be looking at the most and being uh, really resourceful and offering them opportunities to take additional breaks. If I'm an employer, I want my employees to do that. Um, I want anybody who's going through a difficult time to just say, it's okay for me to stop, to just take some breath, and to just sort of peel back away from this. We don't have to be involved in this 24-7. We don't have to have the TV or the internet on the whole time. We can just kind of unplug for a while and focus on what's going to be helpful to us to get back to some sense of normalcy. I think that's great advice. All right, so um, Colonel Fredericks and Dr. Phillips, we talked a little bit about uh, the importance of mental health, and Dr. Phillips hit on some of the things that vulnerable populations really need to, to look out for. And I know from my standpoint, one of the things that have been really tough, and, and Eugene can probably talk about this too, we have young children at home, and our spouses have been put into this uh, kind of, their worlds have been flipped upside down, right? They're used to working every day and being out of the house, and now they've been stuck at home in this new caregiver role. Um, and I'm sure we're not the only military family who has um, seen a dynamic shift um, throughout this pandemic. So um, what's some advice that you could maybe give about best practices for mental health for people in these situations, for um, military members, family members, or the general public overall who have seen their worlds flipped upside down right now? Well, I think it's really important for us to remember that family is the foundation. So what can we do to give our families a little bit more structure and a little bit more predictability? And getting into a routine can be very helpful and so trying to have on time when you have your breakfast, when you have your meals with your family are important and have those together. And then people go and do their schoolwork or they do their, their um, telecommuting or whatever they're doing. And you try to carve out some times for that. It can be really challenging because you get interrupted. So we have to maybe create spaces where it's possible for us to have those various activities and to give each other the grace to have those kinds of moments. We also have to find some time when we can just be together where it's not involving school, where it's not involving telecommuting, where we can just be family and be people. Take some time out doing movies, doing puzzles, um, doing a walk, playing with the dog in the backyard, trying to just be normal again, because this is an abnormal, unprecedented situation, and the only way you can bring normalcy to it is to actively pursue that. Yeah. Holly, I'd echo that, uh, all of it. I think schedule is really important. People don't realize how much routine plays a role in our lives and how important it is for grounding us in terms of our expectations and helping us deal with uncertainty. And so let's say in normal life, it, you don't think of it this way, but the fact that you go to work every day from 8 to 4.30 or 5 or 6 o'clock helps offset some of the stress and tension that occurs when say your aunt dies because you have something that is consistent you have something you know you can depend upon you have something you know is that's my life and this is something else that's happening and i can deal with that knowing that everything else is stable and part of the problem with dealing with uh, SARS-CoV-2 right now is that a lot of that's been disrupted for everyone not just healthcare providers right so uh, not just people that are not involved in healthcare, healthcare too, but 
you got healthcare providers that are now doing additional shifts. They're, you know, maybe a vacation or a conference they're looking forward to has been canceled. They're worried about their CME. They're worried about other things in addition to trying to take care of sick patients or trying to keep well patients well. I think schedules are really important and getting to something workable. And I, I'll echo our senior leadership in the Guard because uh, the Adjutant General mentioned today in really defending time off, looking at Sunday as a time when we don't do things, that we afford time to recover with our families. A lot of us who like to go to church on Sundays can't do it. We can't do it in a normal fashion, but we've got to learn in a, in a marathon how to set a pace and say, yeah, at 8.30, I walk out to my home office and I work there. I walk into this part of my house and it's really challenging too if you have little kids at home and your normal normal routine with daycare or school's been disrupted uh, fortunately we're going to summer so a lot of parents deal with this anyway but then there's this added thing of well I've, how do i work from home you really got to find a way to create that that predictable schedule uh, we eat dinner as a family at five and then on tuesdays we go out on the porch when we talk or we go out in the yard and, and throw a frisbee and you start looking for those normal points that you can count on that anchor you down. I think that's really important for people. People are creatures of habit, and they may not like to think of themselves that way, but they're, they're protective in a lot of ways because they allow us to deal with the uncertainties in parts of our life by knowing there is certainty in other parts of our life. Yeah, Doc, I think that's a good point. And, and for us, I'm thinking about um, Master Dr. Chris just came back from a deployment less than a year ago, and, and I've deployed before. Sir, you've deployed before. Um, and for us, we're used to kind of getting into a routine and working long hours and uh, I, I don't want to say suffering, but we've had things taken away from us in that kind of an environment where we get up, we go to work, we go to the gym, we eat food and we go to bed and we start it all over again and we work, you know, 16 hour days, six days a week for extended periods of time. And, and you hit on this a little while ago, too, that this is a marathon, not a sprint for us. Um, so it's it's a reminder for everybody that um, we have to take a step back at times and think about the rest of the general public isn't used to this. So we may be uniquely situated to to process it. Um but there are still aspects that are, are going to be tough for everyone. And I think Eugene wanted to, to hit on that as well in talking about um, some of the, the ramifications of this long-term exposure to a pandemic. Yeah, I, I know. So, um, go ahead, sir. Well, I, no, I don't want to cut you off, Eugene. Go ahead and say what you're going to say, and then I'll, I'll chime in. No, no sir. Uh, so uh, I, th I think it's, um, for me personally, um, coming off of, uh, a deployment and rolling basically into deployment operations almost as we've gone into uh, reacting to this epidemic. Um, I know while I was deployed, we uh, I did several things with uh, some of the uh, critical care folks that were in Afghanistan, and we we talked about roll one, roll two, and we were you know directly interacting with uh, patients and saw some pretty horrific stuff. And uh, I know that had a an effect on me. And what would you say to the frontline workers that are out there that are experiencing, you know, death and, you know, having to be with uh, patients that are dying that can't be with their families? Well, you know, we do know that there's healthcare providers that are that are self-quarantining from their families in, in heavily affected areas, especially intensivists, people who are working with COVID, COVID cohorts, and even some that they, they're just uncertain. Um, 
this is one of the reasons why we've talked about this, about how we mobilize our behavioral health folk and look of this particular, and that is the moral injury, moral trauma, the emotional trauma that healthcare people, and not just healthcare people, but other folks that have to do the same thing are facing because uh, it's very hard to put this into perspective. We're dealing with an unseen enemy. We're dealing with an enemy that is vague and how it, it attacks and kills people. You can have a 22-year-old that seems pretty healthy that dies, and you can have a 94-year-old that somehow survives. It's it's not entirely like deployment in the sense of I know when I leave the FOB, yeah, I could get rocketed on the FOB, but I know when I leave the wire, I'm really going to go out and there's threats. Um, inside the FOB, I'm pretty safe. Well, we're safe here. And and, and so that's something that's a passion of mine. I think some of the senior leadership in West Virginia Guard as well is how do we anticipate the need for behavioral health providers to be available to these people, to encourage and destigmatize uh, a very motivated group of people. And I'll speak specifically about healthcare providers. People who are in nurses, technicians, physicians are pretty self-motivating. They tend to think of themselves as sort of above the normal um, vulnerabilities of the average population. I can handle this. Well, you can't. You're still a human being at the end of the day. And it's really important that we really work to, on our language so we destigmatize uh, the need if a provider has one to call out to behavioral health and say, I don't know what I'm thinking. I don't know why I'm, I'm having an issue right now. And letting skilled psychologists, in some cases psychiatry, probably in the acute phases where they might need medication, having them step in and say, we'll explain to you what's going on with you. And you're not superhuman. You're very talented. But everybody has their point which they – they have issues. And I, I want to touch on a topic that's become more popular lately, moral injury, where you have something happens where a provider is not able to do what they normally are able to do, and they struggle with that. And they think that maybe they've committed a wrong against someone because they were limited by resources. They had to make a judgment about triaging on a ventilator. Uh, maybe they feel like they were part of something that allowed a patient to get infected because of an error of omission or something that they did that can create something known as moral injury. And, and it's, it's a real thing and it, and it affects people. Oftentimes we see moral injury in medical malpractice where a physician doesn't quite understand why an adverse outcome occurred. And they, they wrestle with it sometimes for years about how did I make that mistake? And it's not because they had to pay a price in civil litigation. It's because they feel that they harm someone. And I think it's really important for non-medical people, especially in leadership, administrators and stuff, to understand how, how affected medical people are by the loss of life, especially when they don't anticipate it coming and they haven't had time to prepare for it, or if they feel like they could have done more. Uh, these are all reasons why at all levels, military as well as the civilian population, I think we need to have our behavioral health ducks in a row. I think we need to have psychologists and psychiatrists available for consultation. And I think non-behavioral health providers need to really start looking out for one another. When they see someone acting off, either making mistakes that they normally wouldn't make or distracted or even sometimes becoming angry, maybe they look like they, they, they're angry when they shouldn't be, like they're, they're saying things to patients or staff that they normally wouldn't say. These are all indicators that someone is really struggling emotionally because they can't control their normal responses anymore. And that means that they're spending so much emotional and psychological energy dealing with something inside that you start to see the chinks in the armor, if you know what I mean. It's a really important thing, and we have to be aware of that because we will pay a price for this. You know, one thing people haven't considered is how many people will now avoid 
going into emergency medicine or into sur- into um, intensive care medicine because they are afraid of either being put in a position where they don't have adequate resourcing or they will be again forced to make decisions that were very troubling to them as part of caring for people. And that will leave an impact. There will be some people who will be motivated by the heroism that's discussed among a lot of healthcare providers, but there will be a lot of people that say, I don't think I can do that again. Or I don't think I could do it at all based upon these people I know who had to go through it. And these are all things we have to think about as educators and as medical leaders about how do we help put that into perspective and be prepared for the second and third wave of this thing. Because it will leave a mark that will not buff out easily. Yes, sir. I think those are all really important points. And uh, as we move forward in our response, um, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be affected that I don't even know that most people have have thought through. And I know we've had conversations back and forth via email about the the long-term ramifications for the healthcare system overall. I've talked about just in general uh, from, you know, readiness standpoints, how are we addressing, you know, people getting their dental checkups that makes them worldwide deployable because there's an impact when dentist offices are shut down and now that's going to push back timelines for people to get in just to get their teeth checked. Uh, Dr. Phillips, um, from your perspective um, and your research, how, what's the ramifications when there hasn't been uh the access to mental health services um, post-disaster or in the midst of a disaster? And what can we learn from that? Well, I think it's really important that we make access to mental health services available as widely as possible and as affordable as possible to a wide range of people. I think what Dr. Frederick said was really good advice. We need to destigmatize doing this and just make it a normal part of what it is that we do. And if you, if you take the time to just breathe every day, then think of mental health services as the same kind of thing. It is helping you to breathe. It is helping you to move through something that can be difficult. We know from research that the people that are the most likely to be injured or harmed psychologically are people that have the closest exposure, the most serious exposure to the injured or deceased. So he's absolutely right. We need to be thinking about those healthcare providers, the first responders, and encourage them to go to debriefings, to different kinds of services that are being made available. Even if you feel like you're fine, you might listen to it and hear something that can help your family and maybe you down the road. Because we don't always see mental health um, needs surface right away. They can surface later on when the, when the crisis is over. Um, you might find yourself shaking uncontrollably and not knowing why. And it's a, a delayed stress reaction. So it's really important to just learn the, about those resources and things that you can do to help yourself down the road. And think about our family members, too. You know, we have a lot of new first responders out there and grocery clerks, pharmacy workers, new essential workers that are stepping up to the plate in so many ways. And those are some populations that haven't had the training we see in healthcare services or the military to be prepared for a traumatic situation. So what can we do to try to reach out to those members of our family and our community? That's a really important part to consider as well. Yeah. And Holly, one thing too, that's I echo everything Dr. Phillips has said about the military. We've got to remember something about deployment. We tend to uh, simplify most of life decisions when we go to deployments because we're focused on a mission task. And people don't think about the energy you put in to say, what am I going to wear today? Where am I going to eat? All these basic life, food, water, shelter, get out of range decisions are covered in the military. When I go to Iraq, I know I'm going to wear a uniform every day. I don't have to think about that. I know where my food's coming from. I just walk over the defect. 
I know what my basic expectations are. And I've always said in combat deployment, if I can get one significant thing done a day, that's probably the pace I got to be at because the friction of a combat deployment is great. Everything doesn't work right. And so if I get one significant thing done a day, I probably doing as good as I can do. Well, when you're at home and you still have the normal concerns of paying the bills and making sure your mortgage is okay. And is my mom and dad okay? Is my brother okay? Who just lost his job. And these things have an effect, but it's on top of all the routine life things that everybody has to do. In addition to a really challenging mental problem, physical problem when it comes to fatigue and sleep deprivation. And I don't think as Americans in general, we're, we're, we tend to be challenge oriented. It's really hard to let go. And I'm going to dime myself out at the, at, with the hope that it encourages people. The other day I had to have a conversation with some of my clinical people and said, I've got to let go of some of my clinical work. I can't focus the mental energy I need to do the military thing and the academic thing and still be good for patients. And the reason why I knew that, Holly, is number one, I don't stigmatize mental health. I know I have to be right for my patients to do a good job for them. And if I'm not right, you know, we talk about the milieu in a psychiatric facility. The milieu means what's the general vibe of the units. The milieu is what we would call elevated yesterday. There was a lot of things going on in there where people were just, they're just agitated. And we had a lot of emergency sedations and stuff. And so I asked the chief clinical officer, psychiatrist, why is the milieu jacked up? And why do I feel jacked up? I, I think it's fatigue. We, we, you know, even our psychiatric patients, they normally get out and they get out in the community and maybe go out to a movie or they do things. All that's disrupted. And so as a clinician, I realized I was getting short and I was having difficulty communicating with patients that normally I'm, I'm chill, right? Because that's what a psychiatric facility is about. It's about mental healing. You keep yourself chill. When I start to get elevated myself, something's not right. And that's the point at which you need to reach out and say, hey, chief clinical officer, hey, staffing person, you need to get me off some of these shifts because I can't be this. I can't keep going and do all this work and be the best I can for patients. So can we find some backup? It's really important to do that because if we're going to do the marathon, when my backup gets tired, by that time, hopefully I've recovered enough, I can come back into play for a while and finish out a couple innings before I have to call in a relief pitcher for the last inning. You know what I mean? I do. It's, it's challenging, Holly. It's really tough for people to get their heads around this stuff. But it happens to all of us, myself included. I know we spoke to a, a chaplain yesterday about some of the challenges of reaching out to uh, their um, members of their congregations and uh, unit members. Um, I know when I was uh, going through my deployment, one of the things that helped me was going in two church services and being around other people and kind of getting out of that stressor. And that's kind of, we don't really, we don't really have that right yeah, it's now. It's not encouraged based yeah. on whatever state you're in. So what are some things that we, you might suggest that we do as far as maybe like calling someone or like taking some time? Like what would be some things that, that would be similar to that that might help folks? Stay connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm in disagreement with most of the state's approaches on this. And I'll just say this. And again, I'm not speaking on behalf of any state agency. I, I don't want to undermine any civilian leadership, but I'll tell you what. And I know that I can say this safely because in general, my two worlds, Ohio and West Virginia, have been pretty good about this. I see some states that are giving citations to people out playing ball with their kids in a park or looking at beaches that are completely empty and not figuring out, well, how can we 
maintain social distancing on a beach and let people get out and get some vitamin D and just listen to the waves and still, you know, using our lifeguards to say, hey, let's face it out a little bit more, but letting people use those things because I can have a pretty substantial conversation with my mother-in-law, for instance, on my patio without getting within six feet of her. I, I can have a lot of good interactions with other people and commiserate together. This is kind of what Dr. Phillips was talking about, sort of your, you know, impromptu critical stress debriefing about where you get together, you talk about how crazy the world is, but you're together doing it. Yeah. And you could still maintain social distancing and you could still do that stuff. When I hear about states that lock people down or that penalize them for being out on their front porch or, or letting, letting people get close enough to see each other's faces and read their body language without a mask, I think that's wrong. And I, I, and I think it, it really is ignorant of what, how, the, how SARS-CoV-2 really works. And I think instead we should be educating people about, hey, when you sit down, look what the flag's doing and try to sit so you're both, either one of you is going to be down one or the other, but get close enough within six feet or six feet or so that you can have a conversation, read each other's body language and, 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 and joke about the, the roughness of this. That's how you get through real trial. As you know, in the military, we do it all the time. Most civilians are very unprepared to hear the language that we we share with one another when we're deployed. We say some really off-color <laughs> things, but part of it is that's us letting go of stuff, yeah. and it's healthy, right? I don't know, Dr. Phillips, you probably have some good ideas about that, too. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about one of my favorite books. It's called Opening Up, and it's by psychologist Jamie Pennebaker, who um, is at the University of Texas, Austin. He said about six, seven weeks into any disaster, people reach a point where they stop talking about what they're going through. They just sort of clam up. And that's when they begin to start seeing problems, you know, physiological problems, um, back aches, headaches, head colds, um, feeling worse, starting to see some mental health challenges. And I think we're there. I think we're at that six to eight week period where we're like tired of talking about this. We want to get out. We want things back to normal. And finding some balance between that is what we, we've got to do. It's our next challenge. And if I've seen anything in a disaster that I believe is is true to the core of how we are as human beings, it is that we step up for each other over and over again. And I think if we challenge ourselves to be in this new moment with keeping each other as safe as possible, we can still find a way to motivate people to be in compliance in ways that are creative. You know, we need to find diversions. I, I think everybody should binge watch America's Funniest Videos. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. They're hilarious. <laughs> you're going to laugh um, and it's, it's almost going to be um, un, you're almost going to be unable to not do that but when you do laugh you sort of release that stress and you forget what's happening around you so keep finding diversions keep finding ways to do that give yourself a little pat on the back for what you've done so far and let's just keep going through this a little bit longer because this could be cyclical this could be seasonal this could be our new normal and so now's our chance to really rise to the occasion and adapt you know, Holly, that's all this too is we, we talk in the military about mission command and mission command is basically empowering your subordinates to with the general concept of operations, but then letting them make the decisions necessary to get the mission done. And it's very common among senior leadership to want to grab a hold of that and micromanage a problem. And the reality is, is that we're going to have people die from SARS-CoV-2 and we can't prevent it. What we want to do is find the best practices in the social distancing, the, the reverse isolation masks of both people when you have to be close, watching what your, what your shoes are doing as far as contamination and bringing it in and out of places. But after that, we have to learn to sort of let go a little bit and say, you know what, dog groomers, 
tell us what works best. This is what we'd like you to do because we think this will protect people, but get your business going. Try to keep the spacing going, and then let's watch and see how it goes because Americans are amazingly resourceful and adaptable people. Uh, and I say that not because I'm a, a culturalist, and it is my culture, but I've watched it over history. I mean, we've gone to the moon. We've done – we've tackled amazingly big challenges, and frequently it's just average people working through their individual circumstance and coming up with a good idea. And, and as leaders, we have to have ways of watching that and collecting that and being able to say, that really works well. Let's do that and say, yeah, we might have a few cases that go awry, but in general – what that allows people to do is stop focusing on the misery of the problem and start focusing energy on fixing it. Because my Sheltie is a mess right now, and I need a dog groomer, and I know that the dog groomer can get the Sheltie taken care of, and Piper will look better, and Piper's not going to give me SARS-CoV-2. How do I get the dog groomer working so she can pay her bills and my Sheltie can look good, and and everybody's happy? Everyone's happy. There's a, there's a solution there, right? But if everybody's just going to say, no, nope, the top says zero options instead of the top saying these are the general principles, dog groomers, hair salon people, uh, try to tell us how you've adapted to this. And we do those – we do that – those impromptu surveys and try to get the best practices and then disseminate it so people know, yeah. I mean I know women specifically who are really – I think if they could just get their hair done, they'd feel better. Because there's a whole social thing going on there that they really look forward to. It makes them feel better yeah. emotionally. And yet coming up with a solution that protects people's health but lets that process occur is really, really important. It's not trivial. It's really important for normal to come back, even while we're social distancing and reverse isolating and all that stuff. It can be done, but we have to let go a little control at the top levels of leadership to let people try out the best practices. And so, Doc, that brings up a good point, too, as, as we look at the, the future. We know that this is going to be a long-term thing. Until there is a vaccine that can be mass-produced, um, and that could be 18 months or longer away, that we're going to see this kind of resurgence um, coming up. So with this, how is it changing our national framework, Dr. Phillips, if you can maybe speak to that, and uh, Colonel Fredericks, even our national defense strategy? That's a good question. I think one of the things I've, I've been thinking about lately, as we think about maybe a second wave or a third wave or the seasonality of this pandemic, and certainly there will be more pandemics in the future we have to be prepared for, they're not that different from natural hazards. Tornadoes have a season. Hurricanes have a season. Those tornadoes and hurricanes can range from weak to strong. We can have very few. Or we can have a season where there's just so many we can hardly keep up. So this is our new hazard that we have to kind of face and embrace. That's a big one. And in big disasters, a lot of things change. So we're going to have to take the opportunity to see what we've learned and what we can change. Very few plans were ready for something of this magnitude, but it gives us the opportunity to make our plans better. We can bring in new partners to the planning table. For example, emergency management agencies need to be working with school systems now. We had a great meeting before this all unfolded here locally with our public health agency and all the schools and universities. And now we're forming this connection between each other that can be very real and very effective in the future. What are some different ways that we can do public education? How can we deliver healthcare service differently? How can we do better contact tracing with 
highly vulnerable populations and form you know, better coverage of services around them and to isolate maybe nursing homes so that we can reduce the number of fatalities there. What kinds of things do we need to do about, you know, an improved infrastructure? Um, I think we've seen that uh, our internet and Wi-Fi system is pretty robust, uh, but we are just pressing it to its limits. Uh, what about supply chain logistics? There's so much that we need to be thinking about as we go forward. But if we think about this as an opportunity, we can make the most of it. I, I got yeah I got to be careful Holly because I wear some hats right, um, but let's just say as a, not a spokesperson for the DoD, um, this is a serious existential threat to the United States of America. And what I mean by that is, you are seeing parts of the country now that have very deliberate political movements that are undermining civil authority because of either political agenda or they frankly just don't understand why they're going through what they're going through. Um, disrupting the American political process, disrupting the constitutional process of the country, that is an existential threat to our nation. Um, what does that mean? Well, that means that we spend a lot of our efforts and resources on things that we think are going to blow things up, physically blow things up. But we're finding out that our civil defense is lacking. Our, our, our resourcing for surge is lacking. Our, our anticipation of things that truly affect the American citizenry in a very direct way nationally has not been real thought out. And this is a systemic problem. This isn't just a you know West Virginia problem or an Ohio problem. This is a nationwide problem. This goes into healthcare corporations in their planning process. This goes into a national defense posture. And again, I'm, 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 I don't want to stray outside of my lane because I'm not the guy that makes those decisions. I'm just saying it is going to challenge this country and the people about what we're really spending our treasure on uh, and what our mission really should be, uh, especially in the military. You know, how does that look? How does it look for us to respond? You know, we, we deployed a strategic asset, uh, the mercy and the comfort, and yet it was necessary, I think, because we, the unknown was coming, and yet we now know that that ship is going home, right, uh, from New York, because it wasn't necessary. Uh, learning how those things actually function in the reality of not just a Hurricane Katrina that affects New Orleans and the, and the Gulf Coast, but something that truly affects the entire country is going to challenge levels of strategic and operational leadership in a way that hasn't happened, not in our lifetimes, and, and it needs to happen. We need to reassess what our priorities are because here's the reality. The reality is, you know, we are fortunate in West Virginia that, and I say this cautiously, we've had 46 deaths of people that are loved, people that will be missed. In Ohio, I think the numbers probably exceeded 1,000 deaths. If I, I haven't looked at the numbers today, but I, think I know it's it was pretty closer. Yeah, it was over 900. By, by, by percentage of population, Ohio has done poorly compared to us. And even Ohio is recognized as doing pretty well, right? Mm -hmm. This is a lot of loss of life that is beyond the flu. It's beyond heart disease. It's beyond motor vehicle accidents. We're at almost 50,000 deaths, or if we haven't surpassed that, nationally. And we've done that in far less time. But actually, we have more deaths now from SARS-CoV-2 than we have for influenza for the five- or six-month season of flu. And we've done that in under two months. We lost 3,000 people in the United States on 9-11. 
So what does this really look like? Are we best postured to meet the real threats? And this is, I'll just finish with this because it gets too wonkish for people, but when we talk about elements of national power, the diplomatic, the informational, the military, and the economic, um, we have to really look at where our priorities are, I think, and how we've applied those. And again, that's pay grades above me, but I think it's going to challenge a lot of people to really say, are our leaders really understanding what could really hurt Americans? And I'm not saying they are or they aren't. I'm just saying those are the questions that will be asked of civilian leadership, of private leadership, uh, military leadership. That's going to be a real serious challenge for a lot of us going forward. And I think we're going to get that lesson. I don't think we can avoid it now. I think that as this goes on, there's going to be a lot of questions asked about those things. And they should be asked. That's that's part of a dynamic nation that that really thinks seriously about what the purpose of leadership is, you know. Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely right. We're going to see a lot of changes. I mean, look at what happened post Hurricane Katrina. Eugene and I were just talking about that the other day. Um, Eugene was there on the ground uh, serving with the National Guard um, post uh, Katrina, and uh, and we see how that change. It was a paradigm shift in how there was a national level response. Um, and I'm sure that in our future, as you know, maybe 10, 15 years down the road, when I'm looking at retiring from the National Guard, we'll say this really changed the dynamic of how the National Guard has looked at for homeland response um, from a military perspective overall, and then how our emergency management principles have changed um, in order to respond to something like this. Um, so with that, I'm wondering, are there any closing remarks that either one of you would like to say or maybe something that we haven't talked about yet that you wanted to make a point on? Let me just say, as the daughter of an Army veteran, thanks to everyone who's providing service in this, no matter what role you're playing in, in healthcare or the delivery of mental health services or contact tracing or providing information to people, it is, it is greatly appreciated. You are our backbone, and we really rely on you, and thank you very much for that. And I think that we will see the best of us yet to come. I know after September 11th, people stepped up. They joined the military. They went and got emergency management degrees, and they have been changing the world ever since. This is as big of a disaster. It's bigger. And we need to know that people are going to step up and that we can absolutely count on them and that we're going to be there for each other. So take heart. It's going to be rough, and it's going to be a roller coaster, but we are going to be there for each other because that's what we've always done. I, I would echo all of those sentiments that Dr. Phillips had just said. I would also say this. I have been really encouraged by the interactions we've had with our academic partners uh, in West Virginia, folks out of the various universities here who are working with us uh, to try to innovate and design new concepts and build robustness and resilience. I'm excited about how we're rethinking public health and the dialogue about how does the National Guard develop an expertise in military public health, in civil assistance to in military assistance to the civil authorities to augment and synergize the civilian public health people? Because they're two different things, right? We the civilian public health people do one thing, but what is it that we as military people can learn from them? What do they need from us that we can focus on so that when we come into problems like this, we're not duplicating each other's efforts, but we're synergizing each other's efforts. And I, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about how the transformation of medical schools, nursing schools, uh, training of EMTs is going to have to have to change. 
And so what are our what are our focal priorities? Are we training the right people in the right things? Are we so specialized that there's just a lot of people that can't do anything because they haven't been taught anything outside of a narrow purview of medicine? Or are we going to rethink that and say, really, the generalists are really important, that we can make them adaptable, that we can teach them how to do contact tracing if they need to, or that they can flex over and do this work for a little bit. And so as an educator, I'm really excited about how we're going to change some of those educational models. And again, I beg to differ with Dr. Phillips about the robustness of our internet, because I have a provider that's awful, <laughs> and I want them to change to Time Warner or somebody that can get me internet so I can teach from home, because that whole paradigm shift in education – do we need big college campuses do, or can we do a lot of that work and reduce costs for students to get degrees? What degrees are going to be important? Has this clarified for a lot of students about what they really should be doing for their career and gives them more guidance and direction about what's necessary when things really get hard that are enduring sort of trades and things to do in their lives? So, you know, I'm watching this movie called The Last Man about Eugene Cernan on Netflix, if you have it. And it's all about Eugene Cernan, the last man to walk on the moon. And it's really a great story to give perspective about how life, the arc of someone's life goes, that they start at one point, but then they end up doing something completely different. And I think Americans, if they can, should take a little comfort in saying, this is a chapter in your life. And it may not be a pleasant chapter. You may have lost a lot of important people. But it could also be a chapter that you learn a lot from, that you can go on in the next chapters of your life with new strengths you didn't know about, with new abilities you didn't consider, and maybe even a new direction in your life for a career or a thing you never even thought about in the past. And that should excite people because there is an end to this current chapter. So I guess I challenge people to say, you're an American. We're a great country full of great people. We can move on and pass these things and do greatness and be an example and a light to the world in doing it. When, when people landed on the moon in the 1960s and early 70s, the world took pride in that accomplishment. We as a country should be able to stand up and say, let's be that example to the world about how you do this. Because there's 330 million of us, and we all don't think that we can – things like we're all created equal in the eyes of God, that we're all endowed with certain inalienable rights, that, that we have great principles, and that when we face a challenge, after we get our teeth kicked in for a little bit, we will pick ourselves and we'll start figuring out how to make it work. And in that, we can be great examples to the world and to one another. And that's why I see hope in this, and that's why I know that one day we'll look back and say, yeah, it was really awful, but look what we learned from it, and look how many people have grown from it. Yeah, I think those are all really, really great points. Um, so I just want to uh, take a moment here and just say thank you both so much for your time today. Um, and at the beginning of our podcast, we talked a lot about um, the importance of mental health and access to mental health care. And so we just want to remind our listeners, um, for our West Virginia Army National Guard soldiers, we have a crisis line specifically for the West Virginia Army National Guard. They're on call 24-7, 365. And that phone number is 304 304- Five six one six six four zero. Um, for our Air Guard members at the 167th Airlift Wing, you can reach the Director of Psychological Health by calling 304-616-5939. Um, and at the 130th Airlift Wing, um, our Director of Psychological Health here is the 304-341-6516. Um, we also have chaplain support available as well, or you can reach out to other uh, avenues such as the Veterans Crisis Line, that's 1-800-273-8255.
Um, and we have uh, resources available through Military One Source as well. Um, as always, uh, we just want to thank everybody for taking time to listen today. Thank you, Dr. Phillips. Uh, thank you, Colonel Fredericks, as well. Um, and we wish you all the best throughout this um, ongoing crisis. And we hope to talk to you soon. That's going to do it for today's episode. For more on the West Virginia National Guard, you can find us on the web at www.wv.ng.mil. And stay up to date with all the current news of the West Virginia National Guard and find links to all of our social media sites. This has been Master Sergeant Eugene Christ with your West Virginia National Guard. Have a great day, and on behalf of the 6,400 Guardsmen in uniform and the 700 citizen employees and our families, stay safe and stay West Virginia strong.